Welcome to A Pastor and Philosopher Walk Into a Bar. We're excited to share this time with you, friends, and we're excited about our interview tonight. Beth Ellison Barr is the Associate Professor of History and Associate Dean of the Graduate School at Baylor University in Waco, Texas. And Beth wrote this pretty remarkable little book called The Making of Biblical Womanhood. And the subtitle is How the Subjugation of Woman Became Gospel Truth. And I think that subtitle just says it all right mm-hmm. there. It's a pretty astute book that mixes biblical scholarship and looking into what were the writers of the Bible thinking when they talked about women in the Bible. And then it goes into her area of expertise, which is church history, particularly medieval church history. And then it mixes in just our biases and culture and patriarchy is everywhere. And the idea of the book is abolishing patriarchy in the church. Can I get an amen? Yeah, yeah. And and this is a really great book to get the historical perspective on this issue. I've read a lot about gender Mm -hmm. complementarianism. I'm sure you have too. A lot of biblical scholarship, a lot of um, theology about complementarianism and that whole debate. Uh, But I hadn't read much history. And Mm -hmm. and that's, it's a really interesting take to contextualize this movement and realize gender complementarianism is fairly young in the history mm-hmm. of the church, and in some ways kind of parochial. Uh, and so seeing seeing it in the context of all of church history is really, really valuable, and that's what she does here. Yeah, yeah, it's fun. I mean, history is like peeling back an onion, and you get to see what really happened. And we've, lo and behold, women have been serving and leading in the church for a long time, and uh, we kind of have a revisionist history that we have. it. But we'll let Beth get into that, because that's her area of expertise. Kyle, speaking of area of expertise... <laughs> We have a scotch before us. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we're trying for only the second time so far in the history of our podcast, a scotch whiskey this time. So I have for you guys one of my uh, favorites. I brought this back from Scotland. Uh, So this is... I mean, instantly, how can we not like it? I know, right? So this is an Oban Distiller's Edition. Oban is a little town on the western coast of Scotland, just north of uh, most of the big whiskey-producing islands. Uh, and there's, the, there's a town called Oban, and it kind of grew up around the distillery. It's actually one of the smaller distilleries in the country. They've only got a couple of mm. stills. But they make some some damn good stuff. Wow. Uh, and this is their distiller's edition, so it's a little extra special. It's uh, got a second maturation in sherry casks after I was about a 14-year maturation <laughs> in ex-bourbon casks. So this is about a 15-year-old... Scotch. The oh. nose is already overwhelming. Yeah. Just like so smoky and complex. Yes. Yeah. It's way not... more nose than I'm used to. So I, yeah, I, I mean... picked this one specifically because I knew you guys weren't super on board with the smokiness. And being centrally located in the country, this is a pretty good midway point between the island mm. dry smoky mm-hmm. stuff and the totally unpeated highland sweeter stuff. This has a very, very low peat level. So you might get a little mm-hmm. bit of smokiness, but, but shouldn't be much. Mm-hmm. See, this is the trouble with doing a scotch. I want, I could go for about 15 minutes. I want to hear like what it looks like. Could you see the the coast? Oh, Can yes. You see the sea? So literally walk out the door down the street, maybe a block or two, and you're on the bay. And on the bay, wow. uh, you can get fresh caught um, langoustines, which is like a little lobster, basically, and fresh caught scallops that they cook right in front of you. It's the freshest seafood some of it I've ever had. It was amazing. Wow. Okay, so this is the the weirdness here is that the the nose is very sweet. You get those sherry casks. Mm-hmm. It tastes like that dark cherry. You get some of the brininess of the like it almost yeah. smells like the ocean yeah. a little bit. 
and then you taste it and you lose the sherry for me. Yeah. yeah. It's maybe on the after aftertaste, but it's it's still you get the peat, you get the leather, you get the smoke, you get the brine. It tastes like there's this word called terroir, mm, which I think yeah. really matters with scotch and wine a lot. And it tastes like I'm it tastes like I imagine it looking. Do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Yeah. Yeah, it's a very imaginative uh, setting and a very imaginative mouthfeel profile. So romantic. I, for me, good, it gets Kyle. a little bit of berry on the end. Yeah, it's really fruity uh, to me. Like pear was another one that mm-hmm. came to mind. A little bit uh, like licorice, mm. mint, like mm-hmm. some of those. That, that That's the way my tongue feels. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, scotch for me has that, this sounds terrible, but antiseptic uh, flavor <laughs> even. It's not a negative. It's just a way I'm trying to describe yeah. it. But you're right. It is a good mix of lowland and highland, I think. Yeah, I really enjoy this. It's like a gateway scotch, I think. I chose scotch for the when when it was like scotch or bourbon because mm-hmm. I'm so much less experienced with scotch. Yeah. Yeah, this is a real treat coming from bourbon. It's just it's a different realm. Yeah, it really mm-hmm. is. It's fun. I mean, I think scotch is just much more sophisticated than bourbon. Oh, and I, yeah. And I say yeah. that as somebody who prefers bourbon in general, but yeah. it's just so much no more doubt. you can do with it because they can age it so much longer. And as Randy said, the terroir mm-hmm. is so different. Like, there's uh-huh. Kentucky, and pretty much everywhere in Kentucky has the same yeah. basic climate. But in Scotland, the climate ranges wildly depending on which region you're in. So you can just do yeah. so many yeah. different things. Do you ever mix with your scotch? Mm, well, with like blended stuff, yeah, but I don't mix single malts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nor should you. The peating process. Tell us briefly about the peating process. Uh, so basically they take the barley and they take peat, which is like sod that grows naturally in Scotland, yeah. and yeah. they burn it under the barley, and it the smoke rises up. and They burn it under the barley, it. okay. So do they have the barley in like cheesecloth or something? Like how do they contain they it? They have floors um, that they lay it on that are oh. like perforated floors. And so they burn so it's the within the building. It, it just rises up through. When you tour the distilleries, they'll take you into these uh, peating floors and you can actually see how it works. And it just smolders, right? I mean, it's not on fire. It's just smoking. Well, yeah, the, the peat. peat's on fire, but not the, not the barley. There's yeah. actual fire? Mm-hmm. Like flame. It's full on. It's like bonfire yeah. stuff. Yeah, it's like smoking. stoves that they burn the peat in. And Wow. Okay. Wow. <laughs> so they peat the barley and then they distill it. And they malt it and distill it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. That's so great. And it's just like they do it because that? they mm-hmm. have the stuff to do it. Like it's just where they are in the world is naturally occurring like yards thick, like square miles of just naturally growing peat. You got to do something with yeah. it. So. <laughs> I mean, I'll bet they like tried cooking numerous things and then we're like... This would be good on some whiskey. (laughs) What would happen if we, yeah. Right. Can you get this in the States? You can. I just Googled before we got on here to see if it was available locally, and apparently Total Wine has it. It's a little pricier than I remembered it being. This is a while ago when I bought it, but but it's available. All right. Well, tell us what it is again, Kyle. So this is the Oban Distiller's Edition. Check it out. Cheers. Yeah, cheers. Well, welcome, Beth, Allison, Barr. Thanks for being on the podcast. We're happy to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I really love this book, uh, and this is a book that comes out in April. Is that right? That's right, April 20th. Right, so uh, if you listen to this around that time, definitely go out and find it, The Making of Biblical Womanhood. 
Really excellent. I don't know anything about history. I'm a philosopher. Uh, <laughs> I read I read history just for the sake of finding out what the arguments were. Uh, so it's it's always nice for me to immerse myself in some history that I don't know anything about and contextualize things from my own experience, which is definitely what this book did. Uh, so, so thanks for writing it. It's super important. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. Thank yeah. you. Thanks for reading it. Beth, this book uh, draws from your perspective and expertise in a number of areas. Your expertise as a church historian, which comes out loud and clear, your biblical study and theological rep- reflections, and then your personal experiences. Mm-hmm. So much of the book, each chapter, you highlight some stories and what you really bring us into what it was, what it felt like to be ostracized from the church that you loved and, you know, worked in and sacrificed for. So could you just bring our listeners into where this book came out of on a personal level in particular? Let's start there. Yes. Uh, This book came out of the fall of 2016, which was a calamitous moment for many, many women throughout the U.S. Um, In fact, one of the first people that I talked with the morning of the election was Kristen. (laughs) We were emailing each other. Uh, But it was, but it wasn't just that, that fall. That fall was also when my husband and I had come to a moment in our ministry. We had been in complementarian churches all of our life. My husband's an ordained Southern Baptist uh, pastor. And he had gone to a complementarian cemetery. I mean, cemetery, <laughs> seminary. <laughs> kind of, kind will, of. Yes, maybe that was there. Uh, he had gone to a complementarian seminary. Um, and we had grown up in this understanding that women are divinely ordained to be under male leadership. And it was sort of a slow evolution for us. And I talk about some of that evolution in the book, but we had come to a moment in our ministry where we realized we could no longer support, completely support complementarianism. And in fact, um, we realized that for all of the all of the women and men that we, the young women and men that we worked with, that we needed to show a different way. And so we had begun to see if we could move the needle um, in our very complementarian church. Uh, my husband and I were pretty reasonable people and logical. And so we, you know, we were like, well, if we just show them the evidence, mm-hmm. you know, the evidence mm-hmm. is just overwhelming. Let's just show them the evidence. And mm-hmm. so that was, that didn't work out well. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but we had asked to have a woman teach high school Sunday school. And we received a hard no on that. And we decided that we couldn't live with that. And we decided at that point we were going to challenge it. Our goal was to try to get the church to have a constructive conversation about male-female roles. And and actually people in the church understand where the church stood on this issue because it was very hidden where they Mm -hmm. stood on this. Mm -hmm. Um, Lots of people had no idea. So that was our goal. Uh, didn't work out so well. Three weeks after that, my husband was fired, um, and it was a pretty traumatic event for us, uh, partially because we were silenced. Um, they held our severance, th- uh, our severance pay, sort of doled it out over the months, so that with and it was told to us that it was based upon our good behavior, which meant we had we couldn't tell anyone what was going on. And in fact, any event before we left, any event that we had, we would always have, you know, the, the, the guards would come to watch us and make sure. I mean, it was, it was very horrific, hmm. the way that we were treated by the, by the leadership. 
And it is, and we were both in trauma because we really didn't quite expect it to be as bad as it was going to be, as it turned out to be. And then in the midst of this, uh, Donald Trump gets elected by my friends that I go to church with. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it was really those, those events that came together. And I'm, I'm not, um, I would still consider myself in the evangelical camp. People keep trying to push me one, you know, push me out in other ways, but I, this is where I grew up. This is, this is what I'm comfortable with my tradition. And so I, it seems to me that for the election to hit somebody like me the way that it did, that it just really shows the trauma that this mm -hmm. caused. And in fact, Beth Moore is a really good example mm -hmm. of the trauma mm -hmm. of this. Um, but so I, I had this moment, and in fact, I start the book off with the moment where I broke. And it's the moment that I suddenly realized that what was happening to us was not only wrong, but it was damaging to the gospel of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And it contributed to the abuse and harm of both women and men, and something had to be done. And I didn't really know what I was going to do at that point, uh, but I began writing. In fact, I posted not too long ago on, on the Anxious Bench, where I still write, I posted uh, over Christmas, I said, the Christmas beginning of the making of biblical womanhood. And it's the post I wrote that day when I broke. And it was sort of my uh, manifesto that I stood for Jesus and I was going to fight for Jesus, and I was not going to hmm. fight for this church anymore, Man. for yep. these complementarian roles. And so I began writing several posts on the anxious bench that began combating, from a historical perspective, complementarian ideology. And that was when I got contacted by an acquisition editor who asked if I had considered writing a book. And so hmm. that was really how, how the making of biblical womanhood began. Wow. Let me just pause there for a second for our listeners. Beth said something really profound right there. She said, I had to stand for Jesus. I couldn't stand for this church anymore. And um, I want to say, listeners, many of us, if not most of us, are probably going to come, if you're a person of faith, particularly in the evangelical church, particularly in um, a more, I want to say, conservative background, you're probably going to come, if you haven't come already, you're going to come to one of those points where you have to choose between following Christ and the gospel or following the tradition that you've been a part of. And man, we bless you to make that right decision, because there's only one right decision there. There is no two decisions. There is no two options there. There's one decision to make, and that's Jesus. And Beth, let me just, as a quick follow-up, one of the most appalling stories to me in your book, you've got all these personal stories, which are so profound and powerful. The one that just blew my doors off was when you talked about your husband, who's the youth pastor, being off on some conference, and then the backup to, to your yes. husband or something, being away or sick or something. And so you were just like, hey, I can fill in. You're, you're a PhD, either student or you had already gotten No, I gotten had your, my PhD. Yeah, your PhD. I, was, I, I think I had tenure. <laughs> you had tenure. <laughs> I'm trying to remember. And so you had I, mean, to convince, I was pretty far along in the process. <laughs> and you had to convince the pastor to let you teach, and that couldn't happen. Can you just tell us quickly about that story? It blew my doors. Yeah. So, I mean, it was pretty standard. Um this was something I'd had to do more than once. Uh, it's just this moment was at the point in my life where I was really beginning to realize how wrong complementarian theology was. And my husband was, he was away. Uh, he was at, it was our youth mission trip. And usually we had, we had a teacher who taught the youth Sunday school. There weren't very many youth left. Most of them had gone off on the mission trip, um, but there were a few. And so he was supposed to teach and he called in sick. His whole family was sick. He called in, it was like 15 minutes 
before. I was on my way to church. I was driving and I was just like, I, you know, there's, I have to do it. There's no one else to do it. We can't pull anyone else in. And I, I'm pretty good at, I could, I knew I could teach something pretty quickly. It wasn't a big deal. You know, I could, I could handle a classroom of students uh, for 35 minutes. Uh, so I wasn't worried about it, but I had to call the pastor and officially get permission to do this because um, we had been told, my husband had been, I don't, he had been reprimanded for allowing, I, I, I don't know if reprimand is the right word. He had been warned about how often I taught and was in the classroom and that, you know, this reminder that this wasn't you know, we had been given clear reminders that this wasn't where this church stood. So I had to call the pastor and ask, and it was this moment because I'm a pretty easygoing person, um, lose my temper all that often. I can count on my fingers the times that I've really lost my temper with people. And I just had this ball inside of me where I was like, I can't believe I have to do this. I can't believe I have to call and ask the pastor for permission to teach, to talk about the Bible with high school students because they believe that because I'm a a woman, that I am under the authority of 13-year-old boys. Come on. I mean, that's essentially it. It argues, I mean, if you you think about, this is what it says. It says there is something about the body of a 13-year-old boy that can teach the Bible, but the body of a woman can't. And I mean, this is, this is insane. And if we, mm-hmm. if we think about abuse in the church and we think about what young boys are being, I mean, I have a 16 year old son, so I'm totally, I mean, if you, if my 16 year old son had grown up in a church, believing there was something about him that enabled him to teach a lesson that a, his mom couldn't teach mm-hmm. or that an adult, I mean, that psychological impact is just, I mean, no wonder we've had so many abuse scandals in the church. I mean, it just really is. It teaches boys that women are not as human as they are. Yeah. And so that moment, I think it just really, I suddenly realized that. And it was, you know, I have all these moments that I talk about in the church where it, the complementarian world began to break for me. Mm -hmm. And this was one of those that's just really stands out. Yeah. And we're not talking about an average mom, even though an average mom would be more qualified than, to teach than a 13-year-old boy, let's be boy. honest. But we're talking about a mom with a PhD in church history who they're yeah. saying a 13-year-old boy is more qualified to teach. I mean, and I want to say, friends, for some of you who might be listening, think this is just an aberration. This is just, this is just a little right. minority. It's not. This is, this is normal in the Baptist denomination, in many Baptist denominations, in the evangelical church, in the complementarian world, this is not an aberration. This is way more um, normal than we think, and this needs to come to the surface. It's, it's Presbyterian. It's you know mm-hmm. OPC Presbyterian. Mm. It's Southern Baptist. It's Independent Baptist IBF. It is Bible churches. Bible churches really mm. often trend complementarian. And what's scary about Bible churches is they have absolutely no structures over them that help you know, that help keep the pastors in line. Mm-hmm. So Bible churches, it's really dangerous because there's no sort of structure at all. And then uh, I, what is John MacArthur? Whatever John MacArthur is, I actually don't 
Some form Actually, of Baptist no. that I'm not um, Is he in. Baptist? Anyway, so Pentecostal, um, it's in Pentecostal. It's also in conservative Catholicism. Yeah. There's been this mm. sort of odd, which to me as a Catholic historian is, is really interesting, but there's been this sort of conservative resurgence in, um, conser- in conservative Catholicism too. Yeah. So a major strength of your book is that it reveals the historical contingency of complementarianism. Uh, so for, yes. for example... Women leaders, and you point this out with example after example in the book, women leaders were common in early Christianity. They were much more common than I realized in medieval Christianity. Yeah. But this contingency is often hidden from the people inside the complementarian traditions that you just named. Having grown up in one, I had no idea that it wasn't just the essence <laughs> of Christianity. You know, It's just in right. the soil. So how did this history get lost to complementarian traditions? Can you say a little bit about the historical roots of, say, a Piper Grudem style of complementarianism yeah. or patriarchy? Uh, maybe so, another way to put the question is, what was the most recent version of Christianity that didn't have that? <laughs> okay, so on the one hand, there is not a version of Christianity that doesn't have some sort of patriarchy that has infiltrated it, because almost Ooh. from the very beginning, because we live, we because patriarchy in many ways, and part of what I, my argument is, is that it, it it came out of the fall itself, this idea of building hierarchies and one per, one simply because the way we are born, somebody's better than somebody else, which is why complementarians argue that their understanding of gender roles is written into the stars. I'm thinking of Elizabeth Elliot. I think mm-hmm. she's the one who had that metaphor. You know, it's divinely created. It's divinely ordained. But the problem with that is that compl- even though patriarchy is consistent in that big thread, the way patriarchy is implemented is not consistent. I, I'm sorry, I have to teach with my arms. I know people <laughs> listening can't see it. But um, the way patriarchy is implemented is not consistent. It depends upon the historical factors around it. So in the in the ancient church, the reason we start seeing women being pushed out of leadership, if we look in Romans 16, it's full of women leaders. I mean, there's just, when once you see it, you totally see how prevalent women were in the early church as leaders, teachers, deacons, apostles, etc. Um, the early church also lived in this Greco-Roman world that argued that women's bodies are not equal to men's bodies. And this infiltrated the church pretty early on. And we begin to see some of the early councils in the fifth and the sixth century start saying that the reason women can't be priests and officiate at the altar anymore is because their bodies are inferior to men, that there's something corrupt about their bodies. But the loophole with this, and this is what develops in the medieval tradition, is that the medieval world um, sort of different understanding of gender and women's bodies were seen to be corrupt male bodies, which Aristotle says it's a good thing they're corrupt because that's how we have procreation, but nonetheless, they're corrupt male bodies. And that women can overcome the corruptness of their bodies and move closer to God. And so women who forsake their female bodies, forsake being a wife and a mother, forsake childbearing, that they can actually overcome the limitations of their bodies and speak with the authority of men. And so this is why we have female preachers in the medieval world. In fact, some medieval theologians argued that that Paul's um, directives, when they talked about Paul, they said Paul's directives don't apply to women who aren't wives because it's only about sort of that legal covering, that it has nothing to do, you know, that women outside of that can overcome their sex and preach and teach like men. So, uh, so this was very prevalent. And in fact, up until the 
cusp of the Reformation. The 15th century is actually a time period where we see a whole lot of women living, serving, leading, preaching, teaching, playing pretty prominent roles in the church. Even in the ordinary parish, we see a lot of women who are very active. And this comes to a relatively abrupt halt (laughs) after the Reformation. And part of what, you know, and what I argue is that the historical conditions change. And we have the beginning of a teaching um, emphasizes the authority of the household and the subordination of women within that household. And even though that, as I try to argue in the book, there's a lot of nuance in here. It is not solely because of Reformation theology. Reformation theology really should have allowed women to be preachers and teachers, but it was tied to these changes, these social and economic changes that were emphasizing this household order and which mimicked the order of the state. And so women, patriarchy kind of defeats theology. Mm. And for modern, like Piper and Grudem today, I don't think they would, in fact, I know this, I've read a lot of uh, church history curriculum, but most Protestants of this nature would don't really consider Catholicism to be part of, I mean, in some ways, part of the Christian tradition, or they're a very corrupt form of the Christian tradition. So we don't teach about Catholicism. I mean, if you look at a lot of Sunday school material and history, you know, books that are written for the church, we go through like the Nicene and um, the Chalcedonian (laughs) era. And then we kind of have this weird, there's some monks and nuns who maybe knew Jesus, (laughs) but nobody else really did. And then we have the Reformation and then everything else is Reformation. And so that's really a big problem of why is because we start our history with the male leaders of the Reformation. And the people who wrote that history for us were mostly 19th century scholars. Mm. Um, The history we tell in books today, the history we tell in our seminary textbooks follows almost exactly the layout of 19th century historians. I mean, 19th century scholars. And so, I mean, this, this is why we, because the histories we tell now are histories written by men, told about men, emphasizing male leadership. And, and then we repeat that over and over and over again. So does that help you? Yeah. And, and that's, that's seminary textbooks. Imagine the dumbed down <laughs> version of that, that you're getting in a church Sunday school class. <laughs> yeah, I've read some of it and I, it's, it's very hard for me to get through it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you say a little bit more? Cause this part really intrigued me. It's, it's kind of a tangent, but I think it's an interesting tangent. So in chapter three, you describe some stuff that's happening Uh, in the medieval church, and you make the claim that the celibacy of the priesthood, which Mm -hmm. was mandated at a certain point in the Catholic church, was in a lot of ways influenced by or maybe even motivated by what we would now call misogyny, at least like a fear of women's bodies as being sexually threatening or something like that. Can you explain in a little more detail that history? Yes. So that's an interesting um, convergence. And it's, I tried, I can't tell you how many times I rewrote that section because it's so complicated actually. And so trying to, trying to explain it in a very concise way, but essentially what we see happening is by the time we get to the 10th and the 11th centuries, Christianity has taken over Europe and it has become quite a stronghold. It has allied itself with the political powers, you know, and this isn't necessarily a bad thing at this time. It's, it's bolstering Christianity itself. It's helping to 
certainly make it very secure. And, and so it, we see the church starting to reorganize itself and more tightly organize itself. And anytime we see the church reorganizing itself, we often can predict that women are going to start being pushed out. Mm -hmm. And so anytime we see leadership being clearly defined. And so this is also the time that we start seeing ordination being, you know, ordination wasn't really a big deal until now where we start defining who gets to be a priest. And part of this is motivated. Part of it is a concern about the female body, that there's something wrong with the female body, that we that women's bodies are impure. It's kind of interesting because on the one hand, it was a woman's body that brought Jesus into the world, but yet here we have this a woman's body is too impure to handle the the Eucharist, you know, the body of Christ at the altar. And so it's kind of, it's it's very much, we see how much this Aristotelian idea has snuck back into Mm. the Christian world, definitely is misogyny. But this misogyny was amplified by a really big problem the church was having. And that was who gets to say who's in charge of the church, who gets to appoint the leaders of the church, who gets to appoint the bishops and the priests. And up until this time, oftentimes the bishops and the priests and the leaders were appointed by the political leaders. And this, and the church is trying to break away from that. And at the same time, the church is also having a problem because many of the leaders who are getting appointed are actually the children of priests. And so instead of people being called into ministry, it's, you know, it's nepotism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the children of, and, and part of this problem is too, is that the church is wanting to maintain control over its property. And when you have a clerical leader who is over a parish and has a child who then becomes the next leader in there, that property begins to stay with the family. It does not stay with, so you see all of these pieces that are tied up in this. And a really great solution for all this was to enforce clerical celibacy. Because what that did is that would make it where priests couldn't marry, their heirs were not legitimate, which means that they couldn't have control over that property. It also meant that their children were less likely to enter the priesthood, which meant that the church would be able to choose the successors. And then this also enabled the church in keeping control over the property and establishing that being chosen as a priest or a bishop or whatever, that this is actually something ordained by God. And it is part of the spiritual power, not the temporal power, which is earthly power, that political leaders shouldn't do it either. So it was a way that the church was kind of wresting control away and getting to appoint its own leaders. And part of this story, women got pulled into this story to help enforce clerical celibacy. And it it worked really well. <laughs> and clerical celibacy is going to take a long time for it to really take root. And it doesn't always take root in many places, but women associated with these priests and women who have the children of these priests are not treated well mm-hmm. and are often always considered, you know, to, to be, I mean, so, I mean, they're often referred to as, as concubines and even as prostitutes. The status of these women was significantly lowered. Do you think that because the the same kind of celibacy thing didn't happen in the East or or in Protestantism, how is the situation of women in those traditions comparatively? Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting that you bring up, and I'm not as much, when I think about medieval Christianity, I very much am focused on the West. But what we do know in the Eastern church, we know that women's leadership in the church actually lasts longer. 
Um, and we see a lot more women very active in the church. We also know that a lot, you know, we can think about people like John Chrysostom, mm-hmm. who was very much uh, a champ of women as leaders. I mean, he he talks about women deacons and doesn't, I mean, he doesn't really have a problem with any of these women in these types of roles. And so we certainly see that what is happening in the East is not being as influenced by these Greco-Roman ideals. And that is allowing there to be more room for women to be in leadership positions and to have influential positions in the church. This also is going to begin to disappear in, in the Eastern Orthodox Church as well in Byzantium. So there's a lot of reasons for that, but it is there is more. We have a lot of the very powerful stories of early female saints are from the East. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I have a student who she followed a tradition called the Golden Legend, which is a book of saints that became very, very popular in the West. And it, a sort of a version of it, it went to Ethiopia. And what she began to notice is that those Ethiopian women carried a lot more authority and their authority wasn't based upon their virginity. Their authority was based upon their motherhood Hmm. and that we have these really powerful female mothers who become religious leaders in Africa. And so it's a very different story. Isn't that some of the same traditions that maintained a a femininity of the Holy Spirit tradition for longer than the others? Oh, yeah. Well, and I mean, medieval Catholicism did too. In fact, that's one of the things that we see this resurgence, this greater emphasis on the the suffering body of Christ and the suffering and the suffering body of his mother and the body of, of women and this feminine characteristics. I mean, we see this with many of the monastic traditions that actually would align themselves with the feminine side of Jesus and even the feminine side of Paul and would associate themselves as the brides of Christ, which, so yes, so there is this strong emphasis on the female body. And there's even these images in the late medieval world that I've worked a little bit on, and they're amazing images. And they're essentially these statues of the Virgin and they're split down the middle. And when you open them up, the entire Trinity's in her room. Oh, man. <laughs> and I mean, they're really, they're amazing because it's sort of, it's like the body of, the body of a woman carries the, the Trinity, mm-hmm. embodies God. I mean, it's, you, you, they yeah. eventually were declared heretical because <laughs> you could see <laughs> some of the funny, problems that funny because I was thinking that them. sounds so much more orthodox to me than Southern Baptist. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it is very, but I think part of it is, I mean, you can think back, you can think at um, th- one of the things that really got me started on this journey, and I can't remember when it was, it was like 2010 or 2011 or something, but John Piper was at this men's conference. I think it was a pastoral leadership conference or something. And he gave this infamous talk where he said, Christianity has a masculine feel. Mm-hmm. And that as a medieval historian, I was like, if you read medieval texts, Christianity has a feminine feel, yeah. mm-hmm. this emphasis on Mary, this emphasis on body of, this emphasis, in fact, one of the things that I see in medieval sermons is that women are more receptive to the gospel. Women are more receptive to Jesus. This is actually something you also see in the gospel accounts and medieval people picked mm-hmm. up on it. Mm-hmm. And so it's just, it tells us that this emphasis on masculinity versus femininity is not driven by the Bible itself, but it's a cultural, yeah. it's a cultural thing, the shift to the masculine idea of Jesus. 
Friends, before we continue, we want to thank Story Hill BKC for their support. Story Hill BKC is a full menu restaurant and their food is seriously some of the best in Milwaukee. On top of that, Story Hill BKC is a full-service liquor store featuring growlers of tap, available to go, spirits, especially whiskeys and bourbons, thoughtfully curated regional craft beers, and 375 selections of wine. Visit StoryHillBKC.com for menu and more info. If you're in Milwaukee, you'll thank yourself for visiting Story Hill BKC, and if you're not, remember to support local. One more time, that's StoryHillBKC.com. Just in case we got any listeners who are glazing over because we're talking yes, history here. sorry. <laughs> no, 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 because I know there's a lot of listeners who are like, yes, we're talking about history. But then there's some who are probably like, wow, we're talking about history and I'm glazing <laughs> over. This stuff matters. What Dr. Barr is talking about is pulling off the lid of our very modern church history and saying, let's look a little bit deeper and finding, here's the here's a crazy thing she's she's speaking to, the medieval church, which was shrouded in patriarchy, intense patriarchy, mm-hmm. was probably more empowering to women in the medieval church than many of the churches are in 2021 today. That we need to sit with. And then she just said, John Chrysostom, who is probably the greatest preacher in the early church in the fourth century, was affirming that women are deacons, women are, women are apostles, women are leaders in the church. This is just a thing that he was affirming. These things matter. They do. And um, Mary Magdalene in the medieval church was actually called the apostle to the apostles yeah. and was considered, uh, you know, and this doesn't go away until like the 17th century where we see this, where she stops being referenced as the apostle to the apostles. So, you know, I think what happened, sort of the shift from the medieval world to the early modern world, even and the modern world, even though patriarchy is a constant, there was this loophole in the medieval world that went away after the Reformation, where women were now our highest calling instead of serving God as our highest calling. Our highest calling was being wives and mothers under the authority of men. Mm-hmm. And that is really what has given birth to modern biblical womanhood. Yeah, probably burst out of these complementary and cemeteries, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I totally didn't mean to say gonna, that. You're I'm, not going to live that down. That's I'm not going to live that one down. Put that as like Um, a soundbite and release it on its own. (laughs) I'm going. I'm going to get in trouble for that one. Uh, Um, So, Randy, I've been hogging the conversation here, but I have one more question, and then I swear you can have it. Yeah, go for it. So, let's think about the Bible for a little bit. I know Randy has some things to ask Mm -hmm. about the Bible. I love categorizing things. I'm a philosopher. That's what we do. So I want to categorize you if I can, and then you can wriggle out. Oh, you, I, you yeah. can wriggle out of it. You're going to have a hard time. That's fine. I'm going to do my best. Um, so when I when I look at people commenting on issues like gender and the Bible, or race and the Bible, or LGBTQ issues and the Bible, seems like to me people generally fall into one of four categories. All right. So category one would be those who think the Bible supports, let's just call it traditional views of those topics, mm-hmm. patriarchy, supremacy, etc. And also the Bible is authoritative and therefore we ought to do what the Bible says and we should be patriarchal and supremacist and whatnot. So that's category one. Category two would be those who think the Bible supports progressive views on those issues and they agree that the Bible is authoritative, so we should do what the Bible says and we should be progressive. Category three would be those who think the Bible supports traditional views, so they agree with category one, but they reject the authority of the Bible, so we don't need to follow it because it's an ancient book. And then category four would be those who think it's both progressive and also not authoritative. So it's just an interesting historical example. It's nice that it agrees with us, but we don't have to put any weight in it. So where would you fall in that schema? And what do you think okay, of the I'll, other ones? I'll let you categorize me a little bit. I can tell you what I'm not. All right. I am not four and I'm not three. Okay. 
So if that maybe helps you a little bit. Yeah, I would have but, guessed you were too, based on the book. Well, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I don't know if I'm going to let you put me in a box. And part of this is my personality. People keep trying to make me do the Enneagram and I just won't do it. Yes. Um, you know, I'm oh, come on. Like, Hold up. <laughs> I, I am. I'm told people are like, what's your number? And I'm like, I have no idea. Doesn't matter. Um, I, I don't really like, and I think this is part of this. Where, what do I believe? I believe the Bible is completely trustworthy. I believe that the Bible is inspired by God, by, but written by people. And what's miraculous about the Bible is that the message of Jesus comes through, despite the fact that human flawed people wrote the words of God. And, and I believe that, you know, I think what I think is important is this what I would consider to be the the primary issue that all Christians can agree upon is what we believe about Jesus, which is also why complementarians, I think, are starting to go outside that camp because of their emphasis on eternal subordination of the Son, which makes them not mm-hmm. actually Orthodox Christians. So, but beside that, so I, but at the same time, I'm very comfortable, I suppose, in what you would consider to be the, you know, uh, Christian. I love the way Christian Dumais does this, is the imagined evangelical. I like imagined evangelicalism because I like this emphasis on the, the, the crucifixion of Jesus, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, this Christocentrism, which is also very medieval, which is another reason I like it. You know, this Christocentrism, it's a medieval ideal. I love it in evangelicalism. I love the emphasis on the Bible too. I think the Bible is a, is a wonderful, miraculous book. I don't think that it is, I think, human translators over time have messed some with the text and that might get me into trouble but it's but it's historically it's very clear that that has happened but i think jesus still comes through regardless it doesn't matter that much so i like the biblicism i like the christocentrism i like the um the the conversionism impulse you know even like as a medievalist uh, reading a lot of augustine i mean he has this fantastic conversion moment you know take up and read and where he says oh my god you know and then he converts. I, I love that. A lot of medieval saints have those same types of conversion stories. So I really like that. And then I also like telling people, you know, I, I'm not ashamed. I, I like telling, I, I've been a Christian all my life. And so I like the imagined evangelicalism. What I don't like is how encumbered it has become by cultural issues that keep us from doing the work of the gospel. And the work of the gospel it has seen the same from the Old Testament to the New Testament. It's caring for those who we don't usually care for, those people who are on the outside of society, the people that Jesus always shows love to. And, and so if that's social gospel, then yes, I do. I do bring that into my theology, but that's because Jesus does. And I don't think we can go away from it. So is that helpful a little bit? Mm-hmm. Where are you going to put me? Oh, you wriggled out of it. No, you're you're Enneagram eight, just so you know. <laughs> you know, people have told me that. I've also been told I'm a one. I've been told I'm a four. Hmm. I've been told I'm a five, which I don't really understand. You're probably all of them. Randy and I just had a recent conversation about this. That if our yep. listeners are interested, it's available on our Patreon. <laughs> I might go. go listen to that to see what y'all say about the Enneagram. No. So. <laughs> so, Beth a recurring name that comes up in in your book the making of biblical womanhood is uh Wayne Grudem god mm-hmm. bless him god, and god bless uh him. Wayne Grudem you know is responsible for the biblical manhood and womanhood with John Piper and he's also in large part responsible for the ESV uh translation of the bible which a lot of 
for sure reformed, but a lot of people who, you know, ho hold a scare quotes, high view of the scriptures think that the ESV is the holy grail of translations. And you do a lot of really good work of unearthing some biases within both the ESV, but also numerous modern biblical e English translations of the scriptures. Mm -hmm. And talk about how maybe Wayne Grudem and people like him, translators, because of their complementary biases, have kind of just changed some words in yeah. the scriptures that make a big, big difference. For example, we talk about the book of Romans and how Paul says Phoebe was a deacon, and she's not only a deacon, but she's the one who took the book of Rome, the, yes, the letter to the Church of Rome, out to them. takes it to them, reads it out loud to them. That's a that's a leader in authoritarian position. Then, or so Phoebe then in this in these modern translations is looked to as a servant, or that word deacon is turned into servant. The only time in the New Testament the word deacon in Greek is turned into a, the word servants. Maybe some agenda there. Then you look at Junia, who it says, Paul says in Romans 16, Junia is prominent among the apostles, right? So she's an all-star among the apostles. Junia, it's a woman. And then all of a sudden in the last, I don't know, 40 years in these modern translations, all of a sudden Junia starts becoming Junius, a man. Out of the blue, go figure. Tell us a little bit about the translation problem that we find in these modern translations that make it so that nobody questions whether or not there were women leaders in the church, because obviously there wasn't, because it was Junius was a man and Phoebe was a servant. Mm -hmm. So I think a part of this today is Americans uh, in Western Christianity, we don't learn other people's languages. Hmm. So our understanding of how translation works is very limited. I mean, if you really think about it, I mean, we might all stumble Absolutely. through our um, high school and college classes and get some, but very few of us actually read and can really read. So I think that's part of it is that we just don't understand. We also have grown up with this idea that English is the, you know, everybody should learn English because we have English. English is the most excellent language. And so the Bible, you know, it's like nobody, it's thinking that maybe English wasn't a really great language for translating the Bible is, I think, is also alien to many of us um, because all we've ever known. And for us, the Reformation is this time of celebration where our we believe, this is not true, but we believe that that's the first time that it became available to ordinary people in, in the English language. And so it's something that should be celebrated. But what we don't realize is that the English language itself, by the time that we get, you know, really time of Shakespeare, moving forward, the English language itself has become very gendered and it's become very gendered towards men, this masculine, masculinization of the, of the English language. And so, I mean, if you think about it in the English language, we don't have, there's no word. The only thing we have for both men and women like together are like they, you know, there's not a pronoun that we can use that's really gender neutral, except for you know, saying they. And so, what happened when the when these early English translators, 16th, 17th century translators, when they translated the Bible, they translated it using these masculine nouns and pronouns. They also walked to the Bible with this assumption that men were in charge. And so they translated the leaders all from this masculine perspective. And this is not actually something that's in in the Greek. The Greek actually has words that are gender inclusive. That's, you know, that mean brothers and sisters, that mean men and women. And all of these words get translated as men. 
and gets translated as masculine pronouns. And so some Bibles, some English Bible translations, it's worse than in others. They have gotten significantly since the 20th century. There has been many of the translations that have come out in the 20th century have become significantly more gendered, where women are really written out of the text. You can see this. The ESV is a very strong example of this, where even places that most early translators would have agreed are brothers and sisters, it gets translated, or men and women, it gets translated primarily from a masculine perspective. We see it's in the 19th century that Junia really starts begins to be translated as Junius. We see this actually does start earlier. There are some folk uh, Reformation. Martin Luther is very famous for this. Uh, You know, it's essentially, no, a woman can't be an apostle, so therefore it's a man. And so, but it's not common until really it's the 19th century where we begin to see this push to translate her as Junius. And in fact, the ESV, I think it still does. I haven't looked at the most recent version, but I think it still says Junius. And then it has a footnote that says maybe Junia, Mm -hmm. but who looks at the footnote? Mm -hmm. The problem with that is that there is no, you know, if we look actually at the, at the ancient, the first century world, there's not men running around with the name Junius but there are a whole lot of documented Junias. So there's very little evidence at all that this could even be a masculine name. Mm-hmm. So I didn't realize that the the ESV was a direct response to the TNIV. Yep, it is. I, I remember this because, as I said, it happened at a time when there were lots of things going on in my life, and it sort of embedded itself. And part of it, too, was because not really even knowing any of this, my husband got me a TNIV. I like the NIV. I grew up Baptist. I grew up reading the, the NIV. And so he actually got me my first gender-inclusive language Bible, and I didn't realize. And I remember the fur about it, all the people who were like, oh, my gosh, you have a TNIV? And, you know, I mean, it was really fascinating to me to see this. And then, of course, the ESV, which comes out in 2002, it was created as a direct response to reclaim the Bible for its traditional emphasis on male leadership. And as I said, as a medievalist, this just cracked me up. As long as your tradition only goes back like a hundred years. <laughs> exactly. I was like, I was like, well, you know, that certainly says something. Um, maybe let's kick it back to the 15th century and let's see what they do there. And you know, gender inclusive language. Yep. You you say in it's the chapter writing woman out of the English Bible, which is what we're talking about. You say Piper and Grudem accused the translators of the TNIV of intentionally, quote, obscuring biblical text to make it more gender inclusive. And I know there's the reformed person who listens to this, who's going to write the, a bad review just because of this. So go for yep. it. I'm going to give you some ammunition right now. But I want to say, so <laughs> what? And I want to also say, praise the Lord that someone's trying to take our faith back to its roots and to the gender inclusive roots that we have. Like, if if somebody said, "Oh man, we're going, get, we're getting too gender inclusive," <laughs> I don't want anything to do with that faith. To be honest yeah. with you, you know, this is actually really a crazy argument to me, and I never really. You know, what was funny to me about it is that the argument I'm thinking about the World Magazine articles, which are just really really enlightening. I encourage everybody to go look them up and read them. But their response was, is that this 
this is what's crazy to me, is that they argue that this is a response to the feminist movement, which is trying to eradicate differences between men and women. Yet they're arguing that the way to combat this feminist movement that's trying to eradicate differences between men and women is by instead of having men and women specified in the text in gender inclusive, we're going to eradicate it and make it all masculine. And that, to, I mean, I'm just like mm-hmm. the logic mm-hmm. behind that is crazy unless your goal is actually not to emphasize the differences between men and women, but to emphasize the power of the man. Yep. And that, I think, is what actually is behind the ESV. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to ask you two questions. These are strong ones now. Okay. They're going to offend some people and pr- possibly some friends of yours. You can plead the fifth if you want, but you say this in your book, and I completely agree with you over and over again. It seems like the view of biblical inerrancy is the, at the root of the problem to me as you read it. Biblical inerrancy, if you see the Bible as inerrant, you find yourself having to justify treating everyone besides males, and in our world, white males, in an antiquated and oppressive way, if we can just be honest, right? It wasn't that long ago that inerrantists were were arguing for a biblically endorsed form of slavery. It wasn't that long mm-hmm. ago. Nope, be- not at all. Because of the Bible. So would you agree that an, an inerrantist view of the Bible forces Christians to hold oppressive, unloving, and dishonoring views towards the human family. Is that going too far? So, I think, you know, inerrancy is such a loaded word. And I actually think it's part, I mean, this is also funny to me, for people who hang our hats on the Bible, the Bible alone, Mm -hmm. why do we hang our hats on an interpretation of the Bible called inerrancy? Mm -hmm. Inerrancy is not in the Bible. It's not, it's nothing that the Bible actually claims. There is not, I mean, you know, God says that his word is fully trustworthy and that it leads to salvation, Mm -hmm. which it does, but there's nothing in it that says inerrancy, that you have to believe it the way that I believe it in order to be Christian. And that's what inerrancy does today. It's, you know, Barry Hankins, who's, he's a friend of mine at Baylor. He's also a really good 20th century scholar. And he has this great book called Uneasy in Babylon that I would recommend if anybody wants to know sort of all of this. And he talks about, you know, that inerrancy really has a lot of different meanings, but what it came to mean in the 20th century is that you have to believe that the Bible is interpreted through the lens of these fundamentalist you know, uh, these people arguing this, these fundamentalists, and that this, you know, that it is completely without error, which, you know, as I said, the Bible never, I mean, never says this. It's it's crazy to me, but completely without error in every sense of the word, you know, including science, all of these things, and that the way that they interpret error or not is by how they read the Bible. So -hmm. if you don't read the Bible the way they read it, then you are not an inerrantist and you're outside of Christian orthodoxy. Reading it that way with that very rigid lens that makes it very, that creates a very fragile faith, yes, is oppressive and harms people. I can speak of this of somebody who served in the trenches in youth ministry for 20 years and the kids that were most likely to lose their faith in college were the ones whose faith was most fragile because they believed that if they didn't literally believe the first three chapters or seven chapters of Genesis, that if there was any evidence that countered that, you know, that they saw that might shake that, that that meant nothing else in the Bible was true. Mm-hmm. And that to me was always terrifying when I watched those kids because I knew, I, I mean, their faith, faith was so fragile. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't it wasn't going to make it out of their parents' household. 
mm-hmm. because you know that that's not the gospel. That's what we have added to the gospel. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I'm going to ask you a similar question, Beth, and this is about, again, evangelicals. And if you're a good evangelical listening to this, I hope you don't fit into this 52% here. I hope that's not you. I hope that you're you're better than that. But you cite the Barner Research Group, which is a very reputable research group, as saying that evangelicals are the most, quote, most hesitant group in America Mm -hmm. in supporting women's work outside of the home. That's saying a lot. Women evangelicals are the most hesitant group in America in supporting women's work outside of the home. Only 52% of evangelicals are comfortable with the future possibility of more women than men in the workforce, which is a full 20% lower than the general American population. I mean, that's shocking. It is. So here's my question in light of all of this. Are is evangelicalism going to have a problem that evangelicals might be seen as a fringe religious group that endorses oppression and other like other fundamentalist religious groups in the world that we can think of, whether it's fundamentalist Islam and that we look down upon so, so strongly, could, and this is your, your identifying as evangelical, Beth, could evangelicalism be headed that way as a fringe group that supports oppression? Yes, I definitely think that. I think that that is, if we look at the newspaper accounts over just the past, you know, the, we think about the Houston Chronicle with the Southern Baptist, you know, more than 700, I mean, abuse, sexual abuse cases. I mean, that's just horrific. If, and I'm sure there's more. You think about Ravi Zacharias. I mean, the, I mean, ho- horrible. We can't, I don't even want to read some of those stories. And I'm a historian because they are just so demeaning to women and women of color. So, and and clearly, this is one of the things that I love about Kristen Kobes Dumais' book is that it pulls away. There is no, you cannot argue any longer that there is not a connection between complementarian theology and the oppression and abuse of women. You mm-hmm. cannot argue that. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I'm thinking about John Piper went on and had that very vigorous sort of that he went on YouTube. I mean, not, well, it went on Twitter, but he put it on YouTube uh, and where he defended, where he said complementarianism doesn't lead to this. It's just sin that leads to this. And it's like, well, yes, it is sin that leads to this, but it is sin that is enabled mm-hmm. by this particular theology that says that some humans, simply because of the way they are born, are better than other humans. It's amazing how sin flourishes easier in some contexts than others, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. I mean, it enables that. And, uh, and so we're seeing the fruit of that. And so I think this is also what we're seeing, like with the backlash, like, you know, as I said, I'm in a, I like the imaginary version of evangelicalism, but if you actually look at my husband and I, you know, I think we clearly are not identifying with the SBC, with these independent Baptist churches, with these, with the CBMW. We're, we're not identifying with any of these complementarian. And we just watched Beth Moore walk away. And I mean, I think this says, yes, this type of evangelicalism is going to I think may go the way of fringe groups because everyone's going to jump ship mm-hmm. it because we're realizing these, that this has nothing to do with Jesus and has more to do with power. Yeah. 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 We were both wondering at the end of this, knowing that you still identify at least in the book as proudly Baptist. Yeah. So over and over in the book, you tell heartbreaking stories like soul crushing stories 
about things that have happened to you, things that have happened to your family, harms that were done to the students under your care who didn't get to hear from you, didn't get you know the benefit of your mm-hmm. wisdom when they should have. There are many reasons to leave oppressive structures. We could list some, right? Not just the harm to yourself and to other marginalized groups, but mm-hmm. staying in these structures tends to prop them up. We recently spoke with Scott McKnight about culture and the influence yeah. of culture on personal formation and how you tend to become more like the culture you're a part of. So this Ew. is like threatening to your virtue to stay. Mm-hmm. All, all sorts of reasons to leave, right? Why do you stay? Yeah. So I don't, I didn't completely stay. <laughs> <laughs> because we did walk out of um, mm-hmm. we did walk out of the complementarian part. I mean, that's one of the things. And you know, part of my story, I sort of I sort of weave this in because I I try to I'm talking about real people, and so I'm not trying I'm not trying to call out real people. I'm trying to call out a system and something that we need to change. Mm-hmm. During our whole journey, we weren't entirely in Baptist churches. We kind of, we went from a Baptist to a non-denominational back to a Baptist. And so there was sort of this movement in our, in our ministry. And what we found, what we have done now is we have walked out, we identify with, um, in Texas, it's called the Baptist General Convention of Texas, which supports women in ministry and actually supports what you might consider to be a more progressive understanding mm-hmm. of the Bible. You know, there's, there's on both spectrums of the BGCT, there are some who are probably still more conservative and there would be some who are more reluctant about women's roles. And then there are also some who would be is very progressive, mm-hmm. what we would, the Cooperative Baptist Fellow. And so the thing is that Baptist is a, is a spectrum. What I love about being a Baptist is that it's not, it's not creedal. I mean, that's the sort of, it's one of the funny things to me about some of these Southern Baptist churches that have become really reformed is that they start having creeds that people sign. And I'm like, you're not Baptist. Um, Baptists don't sign things. Uh, you know, people, I work at a Baptist institution and people are like, oh, did you have to sign a statement of faith? And I'm like, no, I'm Baptist. <laughs> I was like, we don't sign things. Um, so it's sort of funny. So I think within the Baptist tradition, there actually is a lot of room. And I think by walking away from the SBC, I mean, that is actually saying we will not stay in. And that's what Beth Moore just did. And I am just so amazed and so in awe that she did this. But I mean, what she said is she said, I will not stay in a denomination that holds on to these oppressive pieces of our past. And that's not Jesus. And I would, I align with her. And so if the system that we were in now, if it kept aligning, if we were forced to, um, to be aligned with some of these more oppressive structures, then I, we would, we would have to reconsider that too. But one of, as I said, one of the wonderful things about being Baptist is you can still stay Baptist and still be on, there's a wide spectrum of room on, on being Baptist. And so I think that's one of the things that attracts, that attracts me to it. And also the fact that, you know, it's, it's where, it's where my heart is. I really understand Beth Moore. It's, it's where I grew up. It's where I became a Christian. It's where I went to church with my grandparents, you know, this is part of who I am and Jesus is there. It's just, we've tried to bury him. And mm. so I'm all about resurrection. <laughs> so I think we can resurrect. So I, you know, I'm always a last half full person, despite the things that have happened to us. And so I'm like, let's just, let's resurrect. 
this broken system because that's what Jesus does. He brings the dead back to life. Yep. You're an Enneagram 8. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what that means. All of my students will be happy to know that because they keep wanting to make me something. That's fantastic. I don't know what that means, but I find that very hopeful. And I have very little hope for any aspect of the evangelical church these days. (laughs) Particularly the Baptists. Here's to the Baptists. Here's to the Baptists. Cheers. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now, now I've made you think a little more differently about Baptists. Yeah, but, you know, good. I'm also a historian. So, you know, historically, I like what Baptists have stood for. Although I will tell you, I made a bunch of Baptists mad with an article I wrote where I argued that Catholic women had more freedom than early Baptist women. And I got a, I got a whole lot of emails from a lot of upset Baptist <laughs> good, scholars. Good, good, good. <laughs> well, you're talking to a couple of guys who our favorite kind of Baptists are Anabaptists. So, but we won't go into that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Do we want to end it here, Kyle, or do you want to um, ask a question? I don't know. We, we're doing, we've actually kind of sped through our outline, which is kind of amazing. Would it be okay if you nerded out with me about the Trinity for a minute? Sure. <laughs> and then sure. we can call it call it a day. Before I do that, I do want to say uh, we're a pastor and a philosopher walking to a bar, so alcohol is a major theme of our podcast, and it really hurt my heart when you talked about how medieval women were pushed out of the brewing, brewing industry. <laughs> yes. So, okay. I have a funny story for you. You know, I am Baptist, but I'm also a medieval historian and uh, we don't have as many hangups about, you know, some of those old Baptist things. Uh, we don't carry those. Mm-hmm. So I, my advisor at Chapel Hill worked a lot on brewing women. And so I actually learned a whole lot about medieval brewing and even how they did it and all sorts of things. So I had, when I first started teaching, I had a class that I would talk about medieval brewing and I would bring to, my students loved my lecture on beer. It was my beer. I had two days and we'd talk about beer. They loved it. And (laughs) I brought recipes to them on how to make medieval beer. And, you know, I didn't really think about it. Um, About four or five weeks after one of those lectures, I had a kid show up at my office with a thermos and he and his roommates had made beer from one of the medieval recipes in their bathtub. (laughs) How was it? How was it? You can... I declined. You declined. Oh Oh my gosh. I but want, I have never, I, I took the specifications out of the recipes that I handed out after that point so that it would, <laughs> it would take more generic. effort to actually do it. So anyway. Oh, I want some ladies who are listening right now to our podcast who love beer and love Jesus to start a podcast called The Ale Wives. I just want that to happen. <laughs> oh, man, that's <laughs> so good. <laughs> that would be actually Please really good. Note. That would be really Please. funny. Wow. Absolutely. We need to post pandemic have you on again just to talk about beer and maybe we'll get just somebody. To, I'll have maybe to, we'll I have to pull to out, out that, that lecture. I haven't taught that in a long time, but I still have it. That would be so I'm I not even kidding. Out. That would be an amazing special episode. <laughs> 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 okay. Okay. So question about the Trinity. So you, you make the case in the book that complementarianism is shockingly unorthodox. And you actually call it yes. Arianism. Okay? Yeah. So First of all, I want you to explain that, but also, are there any complementarians that you're aware of who openly own the label Arianism or openly own the fact that their eternal subordination view is at least heterodox? Uh, So that's part of it. But also, couldn't it be easily enough avoided for the complementarian? Couldn't they say something like, look, the son is begotten by the father, and the son plays his role in processing the spirit, but the son is still co-eternal with the father, consubstantial 
with the father, so we avoid the Arianism thing, but nonetheless subordinate in role. That's what I remember Elizabeth Elliot arguing, for example. That seems like an easy enough way to avoid the Arianism thing. But you quote somebody in the book as saying, and this was shocking to me, a complementarian document that actually said that the son is subordinate not only in economy, but in essence. Yep. Like, what the hell? I mean, is that crazy? (laughs) That's not Christian. That's not Christian. I'm I'm not an Orthodox person. I don't care at all about Orthodoxy or Trinitarianism, but that is shocking. (laughs) That is yep. not Christian. I mean, it's it is. It's very shocking. So, okay. So, um, let me see which part of your question to answer first. Contextualize um, it for us, Beth. Oh. The, what is Arianism, and what is the that root of the okay. eternal subordination of the Son? Okay. So, Arianism arose in the third century, and I always tell my students the story that it arose with a priest in Alexandria who um, began to convert the sailors when they would come to the shore, essentially by inventing one of the world's first jingles. And there was a time when the sun was not, is what his little phrase was. And what he argued is that Jesus was a created being and that Jesus was under the authority of God the Father because Jesus was created by God the Father. And so essentially what he argued was for two gods. And this is what got everybody upset. Now, the thing about Arianism is that it actually caught on because people, it made more sense than a triune God. Mm-hmm. You know, people understand hierarchy. People in the ancient world weren't as afraid of polygamy. I mean, um, yeah, you know, of um, so um, polytheism. I don't know polytheism. why I said polygamy, yep. but there you that are. Too. You that can too. put that up there with cemetery too <laughs> with me. Um, but anyway, so po- they weren't afraid of, they weren't as afraid of multiple gods. So it caught on. And, and really what it came down to is that if Jesus only died on the cross because Jesus was told by his father who was above him in authority, and so Jesus is only obeying, then what that means is that that salvation is contingent upon God. It's because God came and, you know, gave himself up for us. That willingness is actually what brings about salvation opens the door for salvation. So if Jesus wasn't actually a willing participant in this, but was just simply being obedient completely to this father's will, it brings salvation into question. And so this is actually what's going on. And so everybody got very upset and they declared, they anathemized, they said, anybody who believes this is heretical. It keeps popping up a little bit throughout church history. Every time it pops up, everybody's like, no, that's not Christian. It is heretical. That's two gods, not one God. And then we see it popping up again in the 20th century. And the reason it popped up in the 20th century was because I really think they were getting desperate about gender. I mean, if you look and see what's happening, this is something too that we've really stamped down in evangelical churches. Um, Nobody knows that there were actually a lot of women preaching in the 60s and the 70s and that we had women getting ordained. Um, If you look outside the white church and you look at the black church, you know, I mean, it completely changes the landscape. Go read Anthea Butler. Go read, you know, go read Daughters of Thunder. Um, I mean, so there are women preaching and there are women leading churches. So I think in the 60s and 70s with the conservative resurgence, where they're really trying to, and part of this is connected to World War II, where women were in men's jobs. And so everybody tries to like push women out of men's jobs so that men can psychologically be okay after this really hard war. So we see this sort of concerted effort to 
push women out of places. And this eternal subordination of the sun became a way to really push women out. You know, the reason that I think one of the things that egalitarians had been arguing for a long time, and I mean, we can see this in women's writings, uh, you know, in the, in the 19th century, for, for one example, is they argued that the gender hierarchy was a result of the fall, that patriarchy was a result of the fall, that that was when, when Eve was cursed with your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Not because God wanted it that way, but because of the fall, this is now what's going to happen is this implementation of patriarchy. So that means that patriarchy is sin. It's part of the sinful world. So what the complementarians needed to do was push it outside of that. And so by embedding complementarianism into the Trinity, it makes it now not not a result of the fall, but actually a part of the created order. Mm -hmm. So that is why they need it. That is why I think Wayne Grudem was going to fight for it for as long as he could, because it makes it makes complementarianism gospel truth for the title mm -hmm. of my mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. my book. So is that helpful? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's easy to subjugate women if the sun is subjugated in the, within exactly. the Godhead. Exactly. Yeah. That's just the way it is. Yeah. And it's it's just a plain old heresy. Athanasius would be screaming and pounding on tables if he heard what these good old boys are saying today. There are so many church um, leaders who would be screaming and pounding on the table if they knew what they were saying. To today. be fair, Arius probably wouldn't love it either. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's actually different from, you know, Arianism. Um, in the way, and that's what some people argue. They're like, it's not Arianism because it's not, it, you know, it's not exactly the same. It's like, it's subordination of the sun. Mm -hmm. That is what the heresy is, um, you know, whether or not, because complementarians don't argue that God created Jesus. They just argue that Jesus is subordinate, Yeah. but it's simply, it's, it's essentially the same thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks for nerding out with me there. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. I hope that was enough for you. Oh, I could go that's for fine. hours, but that's probably enough for our listeners. <laughs> yeah. Well, so Beth Ellison Barr, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, this book is incredible, and everyone in the church needs to read it. It's one of those, I think we're at a reckoning moment. We've had so many books within the last year, whether it's Jesus and John Wayne or A Church Called Tove or now The Making of Biblical Womanhood, that is, I think, this breaking point where we are going to find people saying, I can't do this anymore. I've, I've, I'm discovering what's under the hood and I don't want to align myself with it. And I think this book falls in line with it and it's an important book. Thank you for having the courage to write it and we're excited to just see what happens, Beth. Thank you for having me. As I've been reading this book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, I've had this conversation with my wife sitting at the table. We were talking about the way Christians treat minority groups, let's say. And in particular, we were talking about the LGBTQ community here. And my wife just said, why do non-Christians get to be more loving than Christians? And that was it. And it's just a question that I've had in my head since then for about a month. And as I read The Making of Biblical Womanhood, it makes me ask the question, why are non-Christians more loving than Christians? That's a problem. So I want to go into this a little bit more. I'm going to do that on our Patreon. So if you're interested in that idea of why do non-Christians get to be more loving than Christians, subscribe to our Patreon and you'll get to hear me go on a little bit about that. Thanks for spending this time with us. We really hope that you're enjoying these conversations as much as we are. 
And if you are, help us get the word out. Before you close your podcast app, leave a rating or a review. That helps new listeners find us, maybe for the first time. If you'd like to share the episode you just heard with a friend or a family member, you can find those links on our social media pages. You can also find us over on Patreon at patreon.com slash a pastor and a philosopher. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, this has been A Pastor and a Philosopher Walk Into a Bar.